Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Hey, everybody, before we get started, I just want to encourage everyone here, watch the select committee on January 6th hearings. I think it is an important historical record of one of the worst days in our country's history. And I think it's important that you are able to see for yourselves just what happened on that day, who was responsible, and that you can share that information with your friends and your family and your colleagues when they say none of it matters. Every bit of it matters. I hope you'll tune in. I hope you'll find all of our content, ask us questions. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm once again joined by Trig Beals, Senior Advisor to The Lincoln Project and President of Viking Strategies, a DC-based public affairs and political consulting firm. Trigby, welcome back. Thanks, Reed. It's good to be on. So, man, we are recording this on the afternoon of June 13th, just a few minutes, actually, after the second public hearing from the House Select Committee on January 6th has finished its work for the day. And so I want to get some of your reactions to what you saw and what the different sort of threads mean for all this. So let's get into it a little bit. So last week they did it in prime time. This week they did it at 10 o'clock in the morning. Bill Stepien, the campaign manager for Donald Trump, was supposed to appear, had a family emergency at the last second. A lot of people making jokes. Turns out his wife is having a baby. They still had him on tape. But the one thing I, I recognized, Trigvi, is that there's really two kinds of people here. There are the people who are afraid of talking to federal investigators, whether or not that's congressional or the Justice Department, and they're taking the fifth. And then there's just about everybody else from the aforementioned Bill Stepien, Jason Miller, Jared and Ivanka, who all appear to be wanting to tell some version as close to the truth as they can get, because they obviously don't want to be accused and or convicted of perjury, but also they seem to be rats leaving the ship. You know, when these kinds of things start to unfold, right, people start lawyering up, they're all getting different advice from their lawyers. I think what you're kind of seeing is the smart ones are figuring out ways to shape their story in such a way that they avoid heavy scrutiny versus the ones who maybe because of their actions or because they're not that smart haven't really taken the approach of I'm going to cooperate and shape the narrative around my actions. I think the way the committee has pitted certain people against each other has been fascinating as you watch this unfold. They're putting out the case in a really effective way that's using those people who want to shape the story. So remember, Stepien didn't participate in person today. I hope that they will get him back behind the table. But they had plenty of testimony from him on video. And, you know, Trigley, when he started talking about when Arizona was called by Fox and he went and said, you know, it sort of sucked the air out of the White House and Trump, you know, went crazy. And, you know, he said, I'm going to go out there and declare victory. And Stepien's like, you should not do that. And he gave a very what we would consider 
normal statement. It was the same kind of statement Don Evans gave in Austin in 2000, same sort of thing that they gave in 2004 when we weren't going to know that night. You know, not all the votes have been counted. We'll see you tomorrow. We feel good about things, dot, 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 dot. Very old school sort of establishment political thing. So it's interesting that these guys seem to almost revert to their original programming, <laughs> right, when faced with something like this, because they didn't know what else to do. Well, I mean, you know, as I was watching that, maybe you were doing this too. I was thinking about where I was when Trump gave that speech, you know, as standing next to Stuart watching it kind of in disbelief and then actually ended up talking to you. And as I said, you know, I've seen some messed up shit in my life that kind of took the cake. And it wasn't just the fact that any normal operatives in that game we play within a democracy, you know, you would take a deep breath and say, we're going to wait till everything's been counted. That was so odd about that night. It was the speech was worthy of Lukashenko or any autocrat, Mugabe or whoever, right? That that was the approach. And so, you know, when you and I were talking about it that night, I was like, that was the thing that I found so troubling. I think anybody who's worked in campaigns for a long time faced with a close election is going to, in a normal sort of non-autocratic actor kind of thing, is going to say, we got to take a pause here because we just don't know. Anybody who is about maintaining power at any consequence is going to go the route that Rudy was talking about and that Trump ultimately did. And that evening was a low point in terms of American democracy when Donald Trump stood up there and did that. So Ben Ginsburg, longtime friend of ours, worked with him on more different things than I could think of going back to the 2000 George W. Bush campaign for me anyway, was like this election was not close. And he wasn't talking about 7 million votes in California. He was talking about 10,000 votes in Arizona and 11,000 votes in Georgia and however many thousands of votes it was in Michigan or Pennsylvania or Wisconsin, which is, you know, Rick likes to call this trigger the game of small numbers, right? For us, a 10,000 vote spread in a state of millions of votes is a lot. 538 votes in Florida in 2000 was close enough to go to a recount, right? It's usually like less than half a percent difference or something. But these were not those kinds of margins. My dad did recount work for, you know, Republican congressional candidates for, you know, a decade in the 80s. You pretty much knew what the outcome was going to be when you got there, but you had to go through the process. It was less than a thousand votes between Dr. Oz and Dave McCormick in Pennsylvania just last week. And McCormick realized, like, we ain't going to get there. So, like, these margins were never close. No, they weren't close. And you say that about your dad, right? So one of the first races I ever ran in Wisconsin was a state Senate race, and it ended up in a recount. And it was, I don't know, it was like 100 votes in a district with maybe 50, 60,000 people. You know, you get trained up, you go into the recount, and once you've done one recount, they ask you to be involved in every recount because you've had the training. So I ended up doing a bunch of them early on in these small races. And the thing is, votes in most of these states don't change a lot. When you have optical scanners and things like that, yeah, you're going to have some that are filled out wrong or whatever that become points of litigation potentially. But it's so small. It was not big numbers. You know, Joe Biden won that election overwhelmingly in those states. It wasn't a landslide by any means, but it wasn't the kind of thing that was going to be flipped in a recount in those states. And that's really part of what's so insidious about what Trump was doing. And I think the committee was smart having been there 
because for Republicans, certainly ones who've been around in campaigns and more generally probably within the party apparatus, Ben is an incredibly respected lawyer, maybe you know one of the two or three most respected election lawyers. And at a minimum, does it change anything maybe with their actions? Probably not, but it certainly solidifies their notions, you know, what they already knew. And I think it's good that Ben, you know, was having the courage to stand up because that does send a message to them that somebody of that stature is willing to stand up and say that, what they know to intuitively be true. You know, there was Stepien's testimony where he talked about how he told the president, you're going to lose. And, you know, he said the president disagreed with me, disagreed with me a lot. And then you've got the Kushner and Ivanka world, right, where it's like Kushner was only willing to say Trigvi, well, it's not the way I would go about it. He didn't tell him not to do it. And I think that was very telling. I'm not sure it got enough play. Maybe they're going to come back to him because who knows what else they have. But that was interesting. He didn't tell him to stop. He just said it's not the way I'd go about it. Well, one thing that's come out of this and some of the stories around it is Jared Kushner's no profile and courage, right? Well, like, no. <laughs> John Kennedy is not. I just think with Kushner, in a lot of ways, any normal presidency, Jared Kushner wouldn't have been somebody who would have had that kind of power. He'd have been like a low-level staffer in the White House at best. Yeah, and the EOB, they wouldn't even <laughs> let him in the West Wing. Right. He has not come out good in this. That being said, I think you know, who else does Trump have? And that's classic autocrat too, right? They're all surrounded by family and people that can't really extract themselves from the insanity of it. No one wanted to tell the emperor he had no clothes. And there were plenty of people around who were wanting to tell him what a beautiful orange outfit he was wearing. I just think it's fascinating to watch those who appeased constrict themselves to continue appeasing. And it's also interesting that Kevin McCarthy and Elise Stefanik and some of those people, they've gone pretty quiet in the last couple of days since that first hearing. They were making a lot of noise the day before, even Fox News. And that is something that I think us as an organization, we've talked about this and others need to be exploiting. So let's talk about that a little bit. So you've got Jared and Ivanka. Jared's slippery as an eel. Ivanka is trying to find some middle ground between staying her dad's favorite and avoiding federal prison. But in the Trump ecosystem, because now Miller was as big a goon for Trump as there was, Stepien was the guy in charge who Jared put in charge. And you even heard Stepien say the place was such a disaster. I spent all my time getting the thing reoriented. And that's what Stepien is, right? He's a mechanic, right? He's an ops guy. But now, like, who does a guy like Donald Trump trust? What does that do to his world, to his ecosystem? Because now, and maybe this is another part of the strongman thing, is that when the time came, a bunch of people weren't going to sacrifice themselves for him. But at the same time, like, who else does he have? And they're always, I assume, also, Trigby, there'll always be somebody who will do it for the money. No doubt. There's always going to be people that, for whatever reason, are willing to jump on board if at the end of the day, it's 30 pieces of silver, right? I don't know that it impacts Jason very much. Stepien, whether he was in or out, you know, you look at his client list, right? He's got people like Harriet Hagman, Wyoming, who's running against Liz Cheney. And then he's got other candidates who Trump can't stand. And then he's got Trump's super PAC. I can't imagine that what you saw today is good for Bill's business model. I think Jason Miller probably is there to the end. 
I think with Ivanka, though, Ivanka is an interesting one because she is trying to curry favor. I don't know if it's federal prison she's trying to avoid, whether that's a real threat for her or not. I do think at a minimum, it's the Miami social scene and probably your friends back in New York, right? Like maybe during the Trump presidency, she could survive some of that and kind of have it both ways. I think this makes it really hard for her to have it both ways in terms of that stuff. And I bet it's interesting evenings at the Kushner Ivanka household. Let me ask you this about the both ways thing, because that's the other part, too, is that you have many, many attorneys around the Meadows, who I guess is probably an attorney, the Kraken lady, Rudy, John Eastman. Those four put them aside for a second. Then you had all these other lawyers show up and like there wasn't any fraud right now. Bill Barr is a loathsome individual, but like he's covering his own ass, too. And he's like, you know, I did a lot for you, asshole. <laughs> I'm not doing this. The rest of this was small potatoes, but every one of them was like, it's not there. It's not there. It's not there. You know, Barr calls the U.S. attorney for the Northern District of Georgia, you know, Mr. Pack. He's like, it ain't there. None of it's there. I mean, here's the thing about Bill Barr, right? Like, you don't become attorney general of the United States twice being an idiot, right? You might be a lot of things, but dumb is not one of them. But he almost struck me as a guy who was kind of naive. Like, it was perplexing to him. And yet, as you and I know, like, we had so many people that we were we were saying for years, this is how it's going to end. And think about people we know who are smart, right? Who just could not or would not wrap their minds around it. And, you know, what's scary is, is that we have been saying, looking forward towards 2024, that this could happen again, that we're not out of the woods by any way, shape or form. And we still get that. Well, come on, you know, we've got primaries and, you know, six months is a lifetime in politics. But this isn't politics as we know. This is a whole different game. And then they're just going to keep coming. And as long as the resources are coming and as long as there's a bunch of threats to them, they are going to continue to move towards gaining and maintaining power because that's what they do. And there will be plenty of people who, for whatever reason, go along with them. I think most of us who pay attention to this and who believe in American democracy already knew that Trump had lost fair and square in 20. Now we're seeing it on tape. We're hearing it. We're seeing these people behind the table say it. Now you've got dozens of candidates, Republican candidates, who are either running or already the nominee of the Republican Party in their race who are 2020 election deniers. They probably either won their primary Trump's endorsement or both based on the idea that they were willing to go along with that lie. What does that mean for them now? Because that's a much harder thing to make as the platform of your campaign if the entire world is seeing and hearing not from Democratic investigators, but from Trump's inner circle that like they were telling him this isn't going to happen. What does it do to those candidates and those campaigns? Because they must as we've said, probably double and triple down on it because the moment that they move off of it, they start to lose the base. And without that, they're probably cooked. Right. Well, I mean, I think there's two parts to that question. One is, what do they do? They're going to keep doubling down on what they've done. I mean, Doug Mastriano can't back off it right now because the truth of the matter is MAGA has morphed into, you know, if Donald Trump started the MAGA thing, 
he's sort of the McDonald's of it. And there's all kinds of other mega burger companies now <laughs> that are out there that are more extreme. Five guys for <laughs> sedition. Right, right yeah. exactly. So you've got that dynamic going on that they're going to continue to do this. I think the other piece of that question, though, is about all of us. And by all of us, I don't mean just you and I as people who are working on this every day with the Lincoln Project. It's also all the people who are listening and Republicans who are out there who might not be listening, but who know the truth. You know, the question they have to ask themselves is, is that brand of MAGA going to become the dominant brand or is there an opportunity and how do we engage in tying them to that and driving wedges between those who are living in a dystopian reality versus those who understand and know the truth and forcing enough of them along the Bannon lines to vote for democracy rather than for that dystopian reality that isn't based on anything other than imagined grievances and have been demonstrated demonstrably to be imagined grievances and reinforced by Jared and Ivanka and Bill Barr and all kinds of people that were central to appeasing during the Trump years. Do you think that what Bill Barr said about Trump that he was clearly the weakest electoral link for Republicans in 20 because there was an undervote for him everywhere. Do you think that any of that applies to Republican candidates today who stick with the Trump view of the world? Oh, for sure. I mean, you and I've talked about this a little. Some of our listeners probably haven't if they're outside of Wisconsin. I mean, you have a guy, Dean Knudsen, who is a former majority leader, a veterinarian from kind of my home part of Wisconsin. Great guy who was on the state elections board and was in line to become chairman of the state elections board and basically got driven out by Ron Johnson and others because he refused to say he was saying exactly what Bill Barr did. You know, if you look down the ballot, Donald Trump lost Wisconsin because he ran behind Republicans across the ballot. They refused to accept that because they don't want that truth out there because they know they'll be held to pay with the base. It's the same reason that in that particular state, which is Steyerwald said, is one of them that matters greatly, just like Pennsylvania and Michigan. That's why in all the states you have these guys who are buying into it because there's enough people you can't get through a primary on the Republican side if you are not basically denying what happened in the election. And if you're somebody like Bill Barr or Dean Knudsen on a local level in a state like Wisconsin, and you want to speak the truth about what happened that is counter to that, you want to speak about reality rather than this dystopian bullshit fantasy, you have no place. And, you know, in Dean's case, he just said, I'm sick of being called a rhino. I've done more for conservative values and Republican values than most in my state. And now I'm being called a rhino. Forget this. This isn't worth it. That's interesting because now what we've seen, Trigby, to talk about MAGA, Trump and MAGA are now two different sects amongst the Republican Party. There's Trump. He's the sort of prime. And then you've got MAGA, which is the downstream, more crystallized version of what he came up with. Right. These are folks who probably lived in the political wilderness, both literally and figuratively, were drawn into the process by him and said, well, it maybe wasn't even a conscious decision. You're either gone or haven't gone far enough, but this is where we're headed. And so many Republican candidates have latched on to that. Some who were successful this year, many who weren't, I guess, thankfully, but certainly seems to be the dominant strain or the strain with the momentum right now, even if it hasn't shown up electorally necessarily yet. 
Yeah, I mean, this isn't surprising. And I know you had Clint Watts on a while back and he was talking about, for those of you who haven't listened to Reed and Clint, I would totally recommend going back and listening to it. I actually listened to it twice because it's really, really good stuff. But one of the points that Clint makes is about, you know, extremist and radicalized organizations. This happens, right? Like they start to break up over a race to the bottom and doctrine. So I don't think it's surprising to have see some of this. Now, the key to breaking it is to get them fighting amongst themselves. And you're seeing that. I mean, Kathy for Truth got savaged by the Trump brand of MAGA because she had become, you know, ultra MAGA. And you're going to see this in the Republican presidential nominating process, even if Trump runs. I think there's no doubt that there will be people who will try and run as alternative mega brands to Donald Trump. And to some degree, if Trump doesn't run, it maybe makes it worse in the sense that they're all going to do like they did in Ohio's Senate race, where it's a race to the bottom to be who can say the most insane shit. But even if Trump's in, I think you're going to see that. I think the other thing that I keep thinking of while I'm watching this is, you know, you saw a lot of Mark Short on the first day of this, who is Mike Pence's chief of staff. You've seen the stuff leak about how Short was concerned and went to the Secret Service, which was denied by the Secret Service. You know, I'm not so sure that Mike Pence won't run as the mega light brand, right? But it doesn't alleviate the threat in any way. In a lot of ways, it makes it worse. And you still have Donald Trump hanging around out there, probably with nothing to lose and potentially even having interest in pushing himself into the mix even before 2020's elections are held. Let me ask you that. So Trump is not traditionally like, you know, you wouldn't ask him to do your algebra homework, but he has an incredible instinctual feel for his people. So I assume that his spidey sense is going off seeing the ultra MAGA move. Will he move to them to try and recapture that? And so I guess, is that possible? Have you seen that sort of thing before? I'm just trying to figure out like, if the ultra MAGA is crazier than Trump, if it's such a thing as possible, will Trump move to try and recapture ultra MAGA? That is a great question. And as you're asking it, what I keep thinking about is Tucker. The question for Trump is, you know, Tucker, he's like his own Tucker MAGA brand, right? Every night. And he's got a huge amplifier to push his brand. Is that a threat to Trump? Yeah, I think it is a threat to Trump. Is Trump in a position to take on Tucker? I don't know. Well, they're the binary stars that circle one another. They do. And DeSantis is a little bit like that, too. I mean, he's got his own mega brand. He does. But the thing he doesn't have is the innate carnival barker that both Tucker and Trump possess. Yeah, he's boring on some level, right? Like you can take the Yale baseball player out of New Haven and put him in Tallahassee, but he's still Tater. He's still Tater, he, he is. right? He is. And he's where he's trying to double down in this is he's like the mega ultra bully brand, right? Like he's trying to bully Disney. And I mean, he's a real threat. That guy in the White House would be scary, as scary as Donald Trump. I just think... With Tucker, they're the two guys in the bar eyeing each other up, no doubt. Neither of them wants to have a go because one of them would not walk out of the bar. But at some point, you know, the question becomes, is that fight going to occur? And what form does it take? I think inevitably it will. Here's the question, which is Trump wants to be the king. And a subsidiary of that is being a king maker or at least a prince maker, a duke maker. 
Tucker's power is derived from his ability to decide who can rise and fall within a movement. But he's not, I assume, at least in this moment, doesn't want to run for president. Now, that might not be true four years from now or five years from now. So, yeah, that's my question is like we're hearing all these rumors swirling, you know, that Trump is, you know, he's probably extra seething between the traitorous nature that he sees in Iran DeSantis and then the January 6th stuff, which is he feels like he probably needs to do something to fight back. He's probably worried, you know, again, always about his personal safety and his personal security feels like maybe being in the race protects him from prosecution and also obviously lets him raise a whole bunch of money. But like if Trump gets in, does Tucker capitulate? Because I don't see that. So I think with power, when you think about people with power, so there's the amount of perceived power that they have and the, mo the amount of power that they really have. And it can be either overestimated or underestimated, right? Like Vladimir Putin, you know, his power to wage war in Ukraine certainly was overestimated, although that doesn't necessarily mean that the outcome is predetermined. In Tucker's case, Tucker taking on Trump, he's perceived as the guy who can make or break individuals within the Republican Party and within the MAGA movement. Whether he's strong enough to break Donald Trump or not is another question, and him having engaging in that fight could expose him as being that powerful, which a lot of people think he is, or it could expose him as being, in fact, far less powerful than he's perceived. So there's no vested interest in the moment for him and Trump to fight. Trump, you know, is demonstrating far more power to impact some of these primaries. But the other piece of that is, you know, it's consistently 40%. So where the Trump candidates are winning is in multi-candidate fields. Which is how Trump won. Yeah, it is how Trump won. I mean, if Marco, Ted, and Kasich could have come to an agreement on one of them getting out, they would have probably beaten Donald Trump. If the non-Trump Republicans in 16 had done what the non-Bernie Democrats did in 20, we'd probably have a very different conversation. Well, and that's the difference, right, between the Republican Party and the Democrat Party today, because the Democrat Party ended up making that right decision towards consensus and towards faith in each other and were really the Democratic choice. And the Republican Party ended up making, I want power, and if I can't have it, no one else is going to have it. And there was an assumption that Trump would lose, so there was vested interest, well, I'll just run against Hillary in 2020, so I'll position for that. And I think looking forward as it relates to the whole Fox, Trump, all these players, you know, there's so much money at stake in terms of what can be raised or what can be gotten through advertising, carrier fees, et cetera. And it's all vested on who owns the brand and what will be the place where there is opportunity to engage them is how do you get them fighting over that piece of pie? And if the piece of pie starts to shrink in any way, shape or form, then it becomes a lot harder for them because they're going to be fighting over a shrinking piece of pie. And at some point, you know, I think that happens. The question is, are we all prepared? And, I, you know, we talk about this all the time because we are preparing. But when I say we, everybody is listening to, are we ready to take advantage of that? And we've got to hold the line through 2020's election, certainly in states like Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Arizona, Nevada, and the governor's races, Senate races, down ballot. Can we hold that line to force their fight as it comes? And then how effective are everybody who's on team democracy in exploiting that fight? Well, and this is what I've said, and to our Democratic friends listening, 
out there. There is an election five months hence. Focus, focus, focus. You must do what you are usually uncomfortable with, which is present a united front, focus on the things that matter to Americans, give them a plan for how you're going to do that, and kick the ever-loving shit out of Republicans while you do it. Because the Republicans are in disarray because they all hate each other more than they hate anybody else. Because the things that they stand for and the things that they espouse are generally, I would say, Trigvi, anathema to the average American voter, right? They don't like any of this stuff. But without a united front to fight them, and that's not just us, that's everybody who's running on the pro-democracy side of this thing, they will pick you apart in detail because they know that there's only so far you're willing to go to defend yourself or to attack, and they will do everything because Trigby, and this is what I said the other day, for MAGA, for Trump, for those folks, this is an existential fight. This is why 31 guys hide in the back of a U-Haul truck wearing masks and get arrested in Coeur d'Alene at a pride rally, right? That's not democratic behavior. That's not normal behavior. That is the behavior of a bunch of guys who have decided that they're going to go cause trouble at an otherwise peaceful gathering of people who are celebrating being who they are. And another group of people who have decided, I do not believe you have the right to live as you choose. And that's fundamentally un-American. It's antithetical to everything that we're about. Plus, honestly, riding around in the back of a U-Haul dressed in Klan gear is pretty fucked up. Like, you just wonder what the hell was going through their heads. You know, and let me ask you this. For all these people who didn't want to wear a mask to avoid getting COVID, they all put masks on to avoid being identified. Now, if you're so hot for your belief system, why the hell is it that you always wear masks? Is it to be scary or so that people can't tell who you are? I don't know. I mean, it is the central question we have to ask ourselves is how could people get to a point where they feel so hopeless and helpless that they're going to ride around in mass in the back of a U-Haul and show up at a rally where other people are celebrating who they are and try and disrupt that? It's just it's so not who we're supposed to be. And so let's talk about as we see the rest of these hearings over the balance of the month play out. Before we do that, though, let's talk about this. So, Trigby, at the end of the second hearing, Zoe Lofgren, longtime member of Congress from California, laid out a case and they had video of one of their senior investigators doing it, that in the space between Election Day 2020 and let's call it Inauguration Day 2021, the Trump campaign raised $250 million under the auspices of this election defense fund. There was never an election defense fund. They paid Mark Meadows Group a million bucks. They paid Stephen Miller's crazy group a million bucks. They paid five million bucks to a group called Event Strategies, Inc. to plan the January 6th rally. I know those guys, right? I've done work with those guys 20 years ago. And, you know, the rest of it, God knows where it went. So it was like, I want to stay in power. If I can't stay in power, let's make a bunch of money on the way out the door. I mean, I guess we shouldn't be surprised, but like I saw something on Twitter as we were sitting here. It's like seems like textbook wire fraud. Now, I'm no lawyer. And I guess, you know, the rules of fundraising emails are such that, you know, I, I don't know what the rules are. But even the guy who was in charge of the digital campaign for the Trump campaign said it was a marketing deal. It was never about defending the election. Yeah, I mean, they're just looking for profit at any 
opportunity. And what's sad about it to me is there's a lot of really well-intentioned people who ended up contributing their hard-earned money that they probably didn't really have, particularly that 250 That wasn't coming from major donors. It was coming from small-dollar donors. And all that does is ends up making them more cynical about a process that they're giving to because they're cynical, because they feel hopeless and helpless. And it gives them hope and makes them feel empowered when in reality, it's just the opposite of that. Um, it's still all those people that spent their hard-earned money to come out to stop the steal. And you'd see interviews where the people would be saying, this is the most meaningful thing I've ever done in my life. That's a statement about all of us that we really have to be asking, why do they feel that way? And that's the thing is like when Trump talks to his people and they say the, the system is rigged against them, you know, Trigley, I'm not saying that I agree with the reasons they believe that. But you'd be hard pressed to disagree that they could find plenty of examples. And I'm not talking about the cultural stuff. I think there's just on the economics of it of, well, yeah, the system's rigged against me. And that's not just white working class voters. That's probably most working class Americans. Yeah, for sure. You know, I was having a conversation with a supporter of ours who's a really prominent psychologist in terms of understanding these kinds of things. And she was making the point to me that it's hopelessness and helplessness. And America is supposed to be the place of opportunity, right? Like we see ourselves as a nation. One of the things that made us exceptional is like, you know, the up by your bootstraps, Horatio Elger kind of stories, right? But the truth of the matter is there's a lot of places, whether it's in inner city America or in parts of rural America, where that notion has really no longer believed to be true that you can do better. And you see this bear out in some in surveys, you know, the number of Americans who think their kids are going to live a better life than they live is quite low. And that really is what's ailing us in many ways. And Donald Trump came along and gave a bunch of rhetoric. I talk about that a lot, cognitively simplistic answers. You know, you have organizations like Fox that are fanning the flames in social media that overconfidence. There's others who feel this way. And suddenly you have a situation where half of Americans, you know, fit the psychological definition of extremist. And that's something that has to be addressed because once you've reached that, sure, of course, there's a whole lot of people that believe that the election wasn't on the up and up or they don't want to believe it. Well, but this is also, I think, an important piece, too, which is we cannot let the cynicism that is so easy to fall prey to overtake you. The reason why we do this all day, every day, the reason why we say you can disagree with someone on a policy issue in this moment, but on a pro-democracy front, they are your ally, right? They are our allies. You know, we have to get through this process now. You know, Matthew Dow just wrote a column that he released today uh, that said, you know, before we can get to reconciliation, we have to have uh, truth and accountability. And I think he's right. We have to sort this stuff out. I don't know how you can be a Democrat and not watch what Liz Cheney's doing and say to yourself, I might disagree with her on just about everything, but I really respect her. And I'll say, I disagree with Nancy Pelosi probably on 90, 80% of things, probably foreign policy, we agree on stuff. But I respect the hell out of the fact that she put Liz and Kinzinger on the committee and that she's forced this reconciliation to occur. Because without that truth and reconciliation, you're never going to fix what ails our democracy. And that's what all these guys who've made the political decision, the really cynical ones like Stefanik or McCarthy, right? Like it's so cynical because deep down they know that, but 
they want power. Right. But then, you know, on the pro-democracy side, too, though, you know, you don't have to love everyone that you're in coalition with. You don't even have to like them. But you have to understand, you know, the show that you and Maya May do about the game we're in, not the game we want to be in, which is this is where we are. And if you're going to let old grudges maintain a division, if you're going to let policy differences maintain a division, if you're going to let personal grievance, jealousy, whatever the case might be, say, I know what I need to do, but I'm not going to do it with that guy. That's fine. But when we're all sitting there on Wednesday after an election day, whether or not it's 2022 or 2024, you can't say, well, you know, if only they'd done their part, right? Because we all have a part to do. And I'll tell you this is that I spend a lot of time, as you do, Trigby, talking to people all over the country. A lot of folks want to get on with their lives, right? They're really unhappy with everybody. They want everybody to shut the hell up, do their jobs, right? They want normal back. We haven't had normal in a long time. But this is like being on an airplane in the midst of turbulence. You want to get to the clear air, you got to keep flying. It's uncomfortable. It's a little bit scary, right? There's an air sick bag. I get it. If you got to use it, use it. But if you want to get to the clear air, you got to keep going, you know, to crib Winston Churchill. If you're going through hell, keep going. And I think that's one of those things where it's very easy to sort of clam up, live in your phone, pretend the outside world's just going to pass you by. But as we've said, it never does. Politics never leaves us alone. All right. Well, Trigby, we're going to let you go because we've kept you too long. Before we do, though, where can everybody find you online? They can find me on Twitter at Trigby, T-R-Y-G-V-E Olson, O-L-S-O-N. As always, you could find me on Twitter at Reed Galen or on Instagram, Reed underscore Galen underscore LP. Trigby, I want to thank you once again for joining me. Everybody, keep watching these hearings. Send us questions if you have them. We'll answer them. Look forward to seeing you again soon, Trigby, and to everybody else. We'll see you soon. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on the Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. And we'd love you to join us for our newest show, Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Friday at noon Eastern on our YouTube channel. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode.